This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Ralph Ellison's 1952 novel, Invisible Man, is a milestone of American literature, and the idea of invisibility has become a key way for understanding social marginalization. In Ralph Ellison's Invisible Theology, M. Cooper Harris explores the theological dimensions of invisibility within the intersection of race, religion, and secularism through the life and literary career of Ralph Ellison. Harris places Invisible Man and its reception within its contemporary context of literary and theological inquiry. Pairing this with the genealogy of Ellison's proximity to religious scholars and writers reveals how his secular accounts are steeped in theological appeal. In our conversation, we discuss the life of Ralph Ellison, writers of the Harlem Renaissance, Ellison's second novel, Ellison's relationship with scholar of religion and literature, Nathan A. Scott Jr., Ellison's love of 19th century American literature, invisibility as an analytical category, and its applications in our contemporary moment. I'm one of your co-hosts, Christian Peterson, and thanks again for listening to New Books in Religion. Now, my conversation with Cooper Harris about Ralph Ellison's Invisible Theology, published with NYU Press in 2017. Welcome, Cooper. Thanks for joining me on New Books in Religion. How are you? I'm well, Christian. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, I was very excited to read your book, Ralph Ellison's Invisible Theology. Uh, I think it's a really great contribution to the study of religion, uh, both in terms of how you're kind of uh, tackling the, the topic more broadly of religion and literature, uh, but also some of the really important questions I think you're, you're asking about uh, secularism and race and uh, all sorts of things that I think are really uh, very pertinent for today's society. Um, but before we get into the book, uh, we always begin with a little bit about our author. So could you tell us a little bit about what brought you to the study of religion um, are there particular folks or texts maybe that were influential in shaping how you study religion or the types of topics you're you're interested in? Uh, yes. No, thanks. It's, uh, it, it's always uh, fascinating, I think, to think back to where these aha moments or these discovering moments came. For me, I was an English major, um, largely American literature, and I was especially seized by uh, the work of a, of a author named Albert Murray. Albert Murray, as it turns out, was also a very good friend of Ralph Ellison's. And so one of the things that I, I came into in kind of a culminative study as an undergraduate was thinking about Albert Murray's work on the blues, a blues idiom, a blues aesthetic in literature, and, and then also using Ellison as, as a point of inflection and some other scholars, Houston Baker, for instance, uh, was, was another one of these. And, and I was, was working through and wrestling with these ideas, trying to imagine, trying to find a, a language or a kind of currency uh, to, to make sense of what I understood to be in place with these texts. Yet, 
I think some of my my training, something about uh, literary studies in the mid '90s, wasn't quite um, helping me uh, find or realize this kind of vision that I had for these these authors, for these ideas. And so, when I got to, uh, I did a, a an MA at the University of Chicago, and uh, actually in social sciences. But one of the great things about this moment was there was sort of great latitude to take uh, courses anywhere you wanted. And I ended up doing several courses in the Divinity School there, uh, including one in uh, spring term uh, uh, with Richard Rosengarten called uh, Novel Comparisons. And it was here that I learned about this, this field, this field of religion and literature. And it was, I think, through beginning to study within the um, within the context of religious studies, beginning to think about uh, sort of the methods and approaches and the, the depth of field that, that religion and literature as a, as a subfield gave is what really began to open up some of these questions that I was thinking about. What is the relationship between uh, the, the, the social and the intellectual? What is the relationship between uh, the, these kind of material concepts and, and a kind, kind of longer um, conceptual legacies that, that lie behind them. And so that for me was really a galvanizing point. Uh, it kind of set in motion the, the research and the trajectory that, that this book emerged from. Um, can you talk a little bit about how this project kind of came, came together? I feel like the book came together as, as very much uh, something of its time. You know, it, it came together, obviously it was, it was an earlier version of this was, uh, my dissertation, and and it came in this this I think uh, interesting moments in the study of uh, in Black studies and African American studies, where uh, the sort of the rise of of Black studies coming as it did in the late '60s, early '70s, uh, the kind of materialist slant uh, that, that that came with, and this, some of this I diagnosed in the book uh, was beginning to feel dated or was beginning to feel like it wasn't quite uh, sufficient for the things that were going on. And one of the things that I recognized in Ellison was a, a kind of dedication to a, a bigger picture, uh, what he would probably call a grander narrative, which had been kind of a bad word, a bad phrase for so long. And so one of the things that, that really got me going to set this project in motion was trying to think about what what are the grand narrative? What would be a grand narrative of, of, of black studies, of African-American studies, of the concept of race? How can we account for this in other, maybe not necessarily better or not that the other is, or the former is lacking, but, but are there other ways of telling this story? And so for in Ellison, um, in Murray to a certain degree, but especially Ellison became kind of the vehicle for telling this story. And that might be a good uh, place to kind of introduce us as listeners to Ralph Ellison. So who, who was he and what are, what are some of the broader social and intellectual contexts that we should place him in? Yes. So Ralph Ellison was born probably 1913, sometimes people say 1914. Uh, he was an American novelist, a black American novelist, uh, African-American novelist. Uh, he's best known for his 1952 novel, Invisible Man, um, although he was a prodigiously outstanding essayist uh, and 
cultural commentator. And he sort of famously spent the second half of his life writing this novel that never came, that he never finished. So from the early to mid fifties to the, um, his death in 1994, he's writing, rewriting, constantly working on this novel that offers a kind of grand vision of, of America, particularly uh, from a racial uh, context. And so he, he enters into the conversation in fascinating ways. On the one hand, he is uh, highly recognized. He's canonical. Some people refer, and I think if such a thing exists, you can make the case for Invisible Man as the great American novel. Uh, and he, he attains this as, as a, a black writer, whereas we often think of canonical writers as white and male. He is black and male. He also is, uh, however, for this reason, he is sometimes maligned or mistrusted. And particularly in this moment, sort of the rise the rise of black studies, the rise of a kind of materialist vision of, of racial identity and the culture that comes from it, he is taking very strong exception to this. He is uh, he's drawing on, a, on a, a blues idiom, a blues metaphor, yet he's doing so in comparing it to Sophocles and Cervantes and Shakespeare. He understands... Um, the experience of black people in America, and I think probably in the West, uh, to be somehow parallel with uh, the the experiences described in these these moments of canonical great classic Western literature. He says, "I um, people often ask him, are you protesting? Why are you not protesting?'" They often compared him to Richard Wright, who had written Native Son, had written Black Boy, and, and was known for a kind of mode of social protest. And Ellison's responses, and, and well, and then they would say, "Why aren't you protesting? Why does this novel seem very different from anything we've read before?" And his response is, "I am, I am protesting. I am working in a vein uh, with a with a wound, a kind of racial wound that I understand is parallel to what Dostoevsky is experiencing via nineteenth-century rationalism." or that Cervantes is, is working through the dawn of modernity, or that even though we don't know what Sophocles' wound was, clearly in Oedipus or Antigone, there are these things that he's working through. And so he understood this process, the process of literature as a process of de- developing and making uh, meaning out of, out of this difficulty. And so what I, I found really fascinating here is that there is this kind of classic 20th century, almost Geertzian understanding of meaning making and the, the function of, of religion. And as a religionist, I also became fascinated with Ellison because unlike other people, uh, unlike other of his peers or other people who might enter into the same sentence, um, someone like, uh, well, uh, unlike other uh, black writers of the time, he is basically a-religious or irreligious. Uh, he's not identified with any kind of church. He, I think he, he grew up going a little bit to an AME church, uh, but certainly was not involved in any way as an adult. But he also doesn't have um, – he's not anti. He's not – he doesn't have this kind of Marxist resistance like you see in someone like, uh, like Wright. He doesn't have a kind of complicated uh, 
church-like, um, or well, strike that church-like. He doesn't have the the kind of uh, relationship to religiosity like we might see in someone like Langston Hughes, uh, like with Wallace Bess's Langston Salvation. For Ellison, it is a it's a it's a deeper and unspoken level. He is he's a thoroughly secularized writer, and so I became fascinated by the idea of this secularized writer, this thoroughly secular writer who is doing, who is understanding his, his literary production, who is understanding the very act of being in the trenches and, and creating his creative process as parallel to or thoroughly, thoroughly religious, and which also derives or draws on important uh, Western theological terms to make sense of it. I am an invisible man is the first sentence of invisible man. And now if you were to go, and one of the ways this book came about to to return to that question is uh, typing invisible into the the search engine uh, of of the Regenstein library. And what pops up was, you know, invisible... Uh, thousands and thousands of titles, invisible women, invisible ballplayers, invisible children, invisible this and that. And if you look at it, it's all after Ellison. It's all post-Ellison. And yet it all refers to kinds of materialist conditions of marginalization, of social marginalization, which is certainly part and parcel of Ellison's metaphor. But what I also began to realize is that invisibility has this other valence, Ghosts, spirituals, or, uh, or spirits, um, a kind of metaphysical realm. And what was missing was uh, the, the attempt or, or a willingness to, to go at invisibility from this way, not to supplant the other, but to, to kind of make a larger sense out of this metaphor. And so Ellison enters in for a couple of reasons. One, he is non-religious. He's thoroughly secular. Second, he is doing this really fascinating uh, creative project. His, his, his position within the culture is fascinating. And then third, he's very quickly sort of shut out or occluded from uh, more, more, normative, um, more normative understandings or explanations of race and racial identity. Uh, some people call him an Uncle Tom. Some people get on him for not uh, protesting more or being on the front lines. His response to that was, I wrote Invisible Man, what did you do? But he, so he occupies this, this tenuous place uh, within all of these debates and understandings, uh, both intellectual or political and social, excuse me, intellectual, political, and social of his time, which is basically the 20th century. Now, uh, for the study of religion, I think your book uh, adds a lot to this kind of uh, intersection of the categories of race, religion, and then secularism. Um, and I'm wondering if you could kind of, uh, before we get into kind of the, the weeds of some of your uh, analysis, what do you think uh, people that are interested in these topics in the study of religion, uh, how might they employ your your book or, or or take away uh, kind of new, uh, new ways of looking at their own materials around these three categories. Right. One parallel that I, I make that I think is, is absolutely crucial is 
and it's and it's an insertion, I think, into the study of we'll begin with the study of religion, but I think here we also have a parallel with things like understanding race uh, and and then other methodological questions uh, within the study of religion is is that we we live in this moment, this kind of odd separation of religion, theology, religious studies, theology. Uh, how can we keep them separated? What are the what are the realms? And one of the things that I'm really fascinated to push against is is a kind of uh, cooperative antagonism between these fields uh, or between these these scholarly dispositions. Uh, the way I put it in the book, and here is where I think race makes a very nice kind of parallel, uh, an, an illustrative or illustrative parallel, is that I think religion and race have are are alike in that I think we can all agree, or we it, it can be agreed upon, that both are constructs. They are intellectual constructions. They are social constructions. Uh, they're not real in any kind of uh, tangible sense. Yet on the other hand, they are the source, have become the source of incredible violence, exclusion. Uh, they can be meaningful for people. They can, they can point to or derive uh, great meaning within human experience for people. And I think there's a there's a fascinating tension here that that neither that too much emphasis on either something like a, a, a hard religious studies stance or a, or a hard theological stance or or a hard exclusion of either of those uh, really can't deal with, which is what is the what's the recursion here? What is it? Uh, and so one of the we, one of the things that Ellison often talks about is something he calls cooperative antagonism a cooperative antagonism or antagonistic cooperation, he sometimes says. And it's a, a term he derives from, from jazz, where there's competition among individuals, and yet they're playing together, they're working together in harmony. And so, and it, and it becomes also a model for democracy for Ellison as well, that you have competing interests, uh, strong disagreements, and yet somehow you must work it out. And what gets worked out in the process is, is a kind of meaningful expression. And so one of the things that I was interested in, in thinking about is what, what is it, how can might we think about cooperative antagonism within these camps, within the study of religion? What does something like Ellison, how does Ellison offer a kind of um, model for thinking, thinking about or thinking toward um, new iterations of, of this debate. I think also I, I was fascinated by, and, and this is one of the things about sort of living beyond the moment in which uh, a book is written is, is that I, I think probably very differently about um, certain aspects of the, the racial dynamics or dimensions that I was going at partly because um the book was largely finished and it was, it was in press um, by the time of the 2016 election. And I never want to, to uh, give too much credit to, to these events, certainly not more than are due, but, but I, I also think that, that within, um, within something about the cooperative antagonism that I was working with at the time, I think was perhaps more sanguine than, 
uh, what has been uh, revealed or emerged from this moment. I, I remember going through the, the red lines just before the proofs and, and having this feeling, seeing what was going on in this election process and, and saying, you know, you, you reader will know more about certain things than I do. Uh, that's in the conclusion. And, and it's where I'm trying to, to draw all these, these lines together. And I had this sense, even as I was writing, that, that something about the way that I had, had written this over the past few years would maybe not change, but might require kinds of different interpretations or would be uh, confronted by uh, different kinds of interpretational imperatives. Um, and so that becomes, I think, one of the interesting case thinking of a, of a book as a case study, right? Or thinking of a book as something organic that isn't just sort of in a fundamentalist way, words on a page, but something that lives and breathes with the times. Um, that's something that I think is really fascinating about the way the book here approaches uh, the study of race, secularism, and uh, and religion. Hmm. Uh, Cooper, your comments here are making me want to jump to uh, to your, your your final chapter, but I'm going to resist uh, until later because I do want to kind of tackle some of the uh, the the ways in which you think about Ellison's life and writing. And you you start early on with his the context of him um, during the Harlem Renaissance, uh, thinking about questions of representation of African American life in literature. Um, and I'm wondering if you could tell us how, how does he tackle race in his writings um, and how might that compare to some of his contemporaries in the first half of the 20th century? So Ellison has this fascinating relationship, I think, with his with his peers. He's a product of the very tail end of the Harlem Renaissance. He's, he's part of a group that is uh, sort of defining themselves against it. He meets Richard Wright on his first day. I'm sorry, he meets... Uh, Langston Hughes on his first day in Harlem. He's come up from Tuskegee. Uh, he also meets Alan Locke. So you have kind of this old guard, new guard uh, thing going. He is almost immediately falls in with Richard Wright. And so one of the things that uh, that characterizes this, the kind of literature is here, is a, is a naturalism, is a kind of using representation to reflect a kind of truth about racial identity or racial conditions, conditions of particularly black people in American cities or in the American South or wherever this may be. And so one of the things that I find fascinating about this, this impulse is it, it aligns interestingly with uh, these older debates that go back to the 18th century about what is the role of fiction? What is the role of the novel? Samuel Johnson says that Shakespeare, who wasn't a novelist, but was literary, the value of literature is, is just representations of general nature, offering a true, a true depiction of the way that things are. Now, that's a nice thing to say, but the problem is, what does that mean? What is truth? Uh, how, how do people experience things? There, there are these contexts and, and um, 
generalities that that on which one cannot agree. And so this raises a series of debates in 18th century England, and I map these onto a series of debates uh, taking place, especially in the 30s and the 40s, uh, in Harlem and Chicago, sort of around uh, around emerging um, arts movements in U.S. cities. Harlem, the, the aftermath of the Harlem Renaissance, the Chicago Renaissance, as it's called, and these things are taking place in many series, but the, in many cities. But the question becomes here, the just representation of general nature becomes a question in the 20th century in this moment of the emergence, this moment of the emergence of, of what we might call African-American literature is what is, what does it mean? What is a just representation? What is a, a just representation of racial reality? How does one depict this? Do you do like Richard Wright and, and go the, the route of naturalism? Do you do like Zora Neale Hurston, who grew up um, in, a, in an all-black town, Eatonville, Florida, and relied on folklore, who wrote in, in vernacular, who wrote in dialect, uh, and who knew these folk stories? This is a very different vision from, from what Wright is working with. And so I think about this debate between Wright and Hurston and sort of imagine Ellison emerging out of this, someone who is, I think, opposed to sort of outright political, outright naturalism for political purposes, outright kind of exposing and telling this is what it is, and more interested in kind of showing and conveying, yet someone who's interested in creating a literary tradition that at the same time draws on idioms. The folk, folklore draws on blues idioms uh, that kind of revels in a vernacular as well. And so I imagine Ellison is sort of emerging as a synthesis out of this, out of this tradition. Now, uh, you, you move on to the 1952, the year of uh, Invisible um, Man's publication. And you you take kind of a comparative perspective on on what's happening in that in that year, uh, mainly in the context of, of what we would probably call theological authors or uh, or leaders of the moment. So, what would you say we can learn from reading Ellison in tandem with these these other figures? Yeah, I think one of the things I was really fascinated by in the preparation of this chapter, which looks at Ellison. Uh, it, was, it takes Invisible Man and situates it uh, with with Reinhold Niebuhr's The Irony of American History, or uses that as a jumping off point, which actually was published one week before Invisible Man, I want to say. I, I discovered a review when I was looking for early reviews of, of Invisible Man. Um, Paul Tillich's uh, Systematic Theology, the first volume of that, becomes a jumping off point. I actually believe that was published in 51, right before 52, and then uh, Perry Miller, who delivered Aaron into the Wilderness at, at Brown, I think in 1952. And so one of the things that I became really fascinated by is how much cross-pollination, whether it's intentional or not, how much cross-pollination there is between uh, these, these works, these thinkers. Ellison, who at this point is probably not fully engaged, as engaged as he will be, say, in another 10 years with people like Tillich or, 
or Niebuhr, who we probably would have known from uh, the cover of Time magazine. I think it, if he's been on yet. But anyway, he's famous enough to be on the cover of Time magazine back when that meant something. So he would have known about Niebuhr. Tillich, we know that he, I think he was actually heard Tillich speak at Princeton once around this time. And of course, Perry Miller with the literary, um, was working in more of a literary vein. I was fascinated by the cross-pollination here. And I think on one level, if, if as the book does, establishes these kinds of parallel narratives between something like a, a theological trajectory and an Ellison's secular trajectory or tries to map one onto the other is, is the way that being a product of his own time at this moment really, really lends itself, lends itself to this theological identity. Uh, there's this uh, sort of eerie way that Ellison at various points is using phrases I mean, almost exact phrases that Niebuhr is using. Uh, the degree to which he's pulling this out, the degree to which it's something that he's uh, calling from the air, I don't know. But the boomerang, the boomerang that he talks about in the prologue to Invisible Man shows up in, I want to say it's Faith and History uh, from Niebuhr in the, in the late 40s. Uh, at other places, you can see uh, in a... a a, a lecture that he gives in Salzburg for the State Department. He's basically offering a summarization of the irony of American history. Um, so there's this way in which he knows uh, these sources. Now, what I think is fascinating about this is that you can say, well, there's a one-on-one correspondence, but I'm, I think that's less the case. I think that that for someone like Ellison, someone who is is sort of within this intellectual situation that Ellison is in, it shows, it reflects a way that within this intellectual moment, within this time when people are beginning to understand literature, secular literature, Faulkner and uh, other writers of the sort, Beckett a little bit later, uh, as, as a kind of something worthy of religious or theological expression, it, it kind of illustrates how how rife or how primed uh, many of the people who were thinking of those veins would have been to see, to understand, to observe. I think it also gives uh, it also lends a kind of viability to the notion of of Ellison as concerned with matters theological, even if he's not per se writing this as, as a kind of ex, uh, expression. He's not. But if he's, if he's drawing on Niebuhr, if he's, if he's linguistically and conceptually aligned with, uh, with Tillich, if there are these kinds of fascinating uh, recursions of, of, of identity between, say, the Invisible Man and Perry Miller's understandings of, of Puritans, there's a way in which this this language, this literary setup, is is viable in in ways that people have not imagined before. Now, um, the next chapter you look at Nathan uh, Nathan A. Scott Jr. and particularly his relationship with Ellison. Um, can you tell us a little bit about who he was and then how you think he shaped Ellison and his his writing? 
Definitely. So Nathan Scott, Nathan A. Scott Jr., was uh, a professor of theology and literature at the University of Chicago Divinity School. Uh, he was also uh, an African-American man, raised in Detroit, a uh, product of University of Michigan uh, and Union Theological Seminary in Columbia uh, for his, his graduate work, where he studied, among other people, with, with Tillich and Niebuhr. And he was... I think the center of gravity of, of this subfield of what was then theology and literature now would probably be called, well, we would call religion and literature. He was the center of gravity uh, for this subfield for several decades. Uh, he was in Chicago from the early 50s to the mid-70s. He moved to the University of Virginia, where he and his wife became uh, the first tenured faculty members at UVA. And what Scott understood was, or what Scott's vision was, he was trained as a, an Episcopal priest. He was an expert in, in modern Christian theology, or, or really Christian theology, and, and the modern literary tradition, although he was really kind of a polymath within Western knowledge in general. And what he understood was that in a time when overtly religious expressions, overtly um, appeals to a kind of overt religiosity were on the wane in the 20th century. At a time when, you know, and God is dead, right, becomes one of the, the great phrases of the 60s. In this moment, it is literature, modern secular literature, that offers perhaps the best vehicle for grappling with the reality of, of mid-20th century life, the reality of the bomb, the reality of contending with ramifications of the Holocaust, the, the reality of, of kind of evil and bad that's at play in, in this, this period of 20th century. And so he is this, this, this figure and, and, he meets Ellison around 1960. Ellison goes to the University of Chicago to teach for a semester, and they hit it off immediately. And so one of the things that I've done in this chapter was sort of tried to work through this relationship, because I think it's another way that we see Ellison as religiously inflected, uh, theologically inflected, uh, in a way that is, I think, unexpected for most readers. Scott and Ellison hit it off immediately. They are um, inseparable uh, during Ellison's term at Chicago. They begin this fascinating correspondence almost immediately. And there are two things about this correspondence that really strike me as, as germane to understanding Ellison, but also to understanding Ellison's role or his place in religion and literature. The first is that it's clear that Scott is recognizes something, recognizes maybe what I call the invisible theology, Ellison's invisible theology, recognizes it as there. And so in the letters, you can see him trying to influence the reading, trying to influence uh, meetings with individuals, trying to get Ellison involved in organizations like the Society for Arts, Religion, and 
literature, I forget the name of this, but this, this mid-century society, he's recommending him to give um, lectures, the Phelps lectures at, at Yale Divinity School. He's suggesting um, reading. He's sending Ellison his articles, his, his books. He's trying to cultivate this, this, almost this education within Ellison, a kind of theological education. And Ellison recognizes it, and he, and he gains from it. There's one letter where he writes to, uh, to Scott, thanking him f- for dedicating um, a book, The Wild Prayer of Longing, to him. And he says, I, I am... Um, let me make sure I can get this right. He says that he is... He says that he feels like something has gone out of, of literature... Something has gone out of literary production with a kind of turn away, a turn away from uh, the kind of grandeur that theological questions uh, bring. That people are no longer interested in these these big, these larger questions. Uh, and he says, but thanks to you, I'm able to, to see and I'm able to understand sort of where these are coming from. In other places, they discuss reading. So that's one aspect is that there is this friendship wherein Ellison is is learning, receiving a kind of a kind of education from this looming figure in religion and literature. The second is, and I've spoken a little bit about how Ellison is outside of outside of sort of the the outside of the outside of the mainstream, particularly, I think, among um, left intellectual uh, arguments about, about race. He's, uh, he's criticized for not, being, uh, for not being more involved in, in, say, civil rights marches. He is, at times, called an Uncle Tom. But this is also a, a difficulty that, that Scott had. Scott was, I think, like Ellison, deeply, deeply invested in, uh, in this moment, in this, this kind of moment of, of, he was deeply invested in his identity as, as a black man, yet he did not buy into or did not go along with the kinds of dominant strains of what that would mean. So, for instance, uh, on the one hand, unlike Ellison, he's marching in Selma. His father's from Selma, and, and the call goes up from King, and, and Scott puts on his collar and goes down there. But in other ways, in other times when he either could contribute to some kind of um, something like affirmative action or along these ways, he's, he's staunchly, staunchly against it. He's distrustful. There are these, these letters they're exchanging about um, Birmingham. Uh, these letters they're exchanging about things as they're happening on the ground. Uh, there's one that I think it's like a week before Medgar Evers is killed. And they're, they're distrustful. They're distrustful of what's happening. And it's easy, I think, to look back now and say, well, they, were, they didn't know what they were talking about or know what they were doing. But I think also what these letters reveal is how how profoundly, uh, how profoundly difficult it could be to within this kind of 
idea of representation, this kind of idea of how one can be successful, how one can can have a, a, a professorship at the University of Chicago Divinity School um, and feel like one has kind of earned one's own way there in the early 50s and then suddenly be, be cast into, thrown into uh, these later debates. Uh, so what we see is, is a kind of parallel between uh, the way in which they the way in which they are public, uh, there are black figures in public. Uh, and I think they, they took together uh, a great deal of uh, solace from one another in the way that works. And so if we want to understand Ellison, I think seeing Scott and the way he's working through that is, is really useful. It gives a kind of, whereas maybe Ellison in his public pronouncements or even many of his private pronouncements might have been either more dismissive or might have felt cornered or might have not wanted to, to give credence to many of the, the, the more vociferous criticism against him. I think what we see here is, is a way where Ellison is talking through, thinking through with, in, a kind of, in a kind of safe relationship, sort of his own understandings of, of his role as a public figure. A uh, public figure who was also a black man at a time when the country is consumed with the question of what, what does what does that mean? Now, uh, Ellison famously never finished his his second novel, um, and you you tackle this kind of question of uh, the second novel within kind of the broader context of uh, kind of the, the late. 20th century or second half of the 20th century uh, kind of social life um, and his place in this. Um, can, can you tell us a little bit about uh, the, this unfinished novel and, and how you see it as a way of kind of examining uh, his life and times in the, in the kind of post invisible man years? Yes. So this is uh... You know, the second novel, as I'll refer to it, it goes, it's published as in a condensed version as Juneteenth, um, or a, 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 it's edited down. Uh, there are complete editions of it now you know, that run well more than a thousand pages uh, of, of different episodes. He began writing it in the 50s, probably the mid 50s, probably not long after Invisible Man is, is coming out. Uh, he was set to finish it at some point, maybe in the late 60s. There was a fire that may or may not have destroyed some of the copies of it, but it certainly gave him an excuse to keep going. And he never finishes it. So from sometime around 1952 or three until 1994, this thing is in progress. What he says, his stated purpose, his stated purpose in this novel is that he wants to, uh, he told one, uh, one friend that he wanted to Negro Americanize the novel in another Friend, he's, he's, he's looking at the, the, core, the core question of American identity is the way that he characterizes what he's doing. And so people have various, postulated various reasons for why he didn't finish. But one of the things I was really fascinated in is that he takes on this, this task, this almost impossible task, even in a moment of relative stability, if such can exist. And yet he's doing this 
uh, he's starting sometime in a year or two before Montgomery. And then he's trying to write through Little Rock and he's trying to write through Birmingham and he's trying to write through Selma and you can go into the late sixties and into the seventies and into the eighties. And you've got, you've got Rodney King and you've got a uh, million man March. So he's, he's taking on the same task at a, at a moment when, when sort of history won't sit still. And one of the really fascinating things that I try to, to work with here is some of the literature about, um, about American civil religion or, or, however it is we want to call it, but there's, there's a way that Ellison is, is a really kind of classic um, unum and pluribus and unum guy. Uh, there's a lot of language of pluribus and unum in both, um, in, in both the, uh, in both Invisible Man and in the second novel as well. And the idea is that pluribus and unum somehow are kind of reconciled. They work themselves out and, but what's fascinating is if you look at sort of literature that's trying to track some kind of understanding about um, whatever we might call or understand as, as American civil religion, is there's something about this very period that he's where he's writing, something about this late 60s into the 70s, especially, where there's a kind of flip, where there's an emphasis maybe before on, on Unum, um, I believe. Uh, Martin Marty calls it the... Um, Oh, centripetal, where things are pushed toward the center. And then there's a shift toward the centripetal, which I found to be a really useful um, sort of analogy. And so the idea then becomes maybe more about uh, singular identities as opposed to a kind of whole, a kind of American whole. And so this becomes a real diagnosis for what Ellison's trying to do. He keeps rewriting. He's trying to get it right. And yet he can never capture what's going on here. And so we arrive and the, I think the chapter of the title comes, um, comes from this moment. I found he was trying to write his autobiography, uh, which he also didn't finish. But on the back of uh, a TypeScript page, he had written uh, the Pledge of Allegiance. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the USA and to the republic for which it stands, one nation. He inserts under God. He inserts under God with a, a carrot, like he had forgotten it, right? It, it's coming to being since, you know, in the 50s. <coughs> One nation in, uh, indivisible with liberty and justice for all. And then below it, he goes back and he writes it again. Except he does it with, he plays with it, he riffs on it, he signifies on it. I pledge allegiance to the flag uh, and to the republic for which it stands. One blues invisible with sorrowful laughter for all. And I think that, that what we can see here is in whatever these wranglings are, this, these kinds of attempts at a, at a, at a, a sanctified vision of America or, or American-ness, uh, that's very much at the core of this, of this intellectual context that Ellison emerges out of that becomes part of the difficulty of his operating in maybe the last two or three decades of his life that comes really to kind of define him for the, for the worse. He understands it as this blues mode, as this, this kind of, uh, this kind of tragic identity. And one of the things that I say is, is that actually something like this is kind of anticipating, uh, Barack Obama. Ellison is 
and other people have written about this, but his his understanding, this notion of pluribus and unum, this kind of America, this vision that he has, is is in many ways really anticipates something like Obama's race speech in Philadelphia. Uh, and particularly when you get sort of the high rhetorical Obama, he goes into this Ellisonian mode. Um, and so this became a, a fascination for me is trying to track this and trying to read it again, you know, through and against this, this literature of, of American civil religion and trying to imagine, you know, what, what is it about this figure, this, 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 writer who understands himself to be generating this kind of Geertzian meaning at a time when conditions, when the rituals themselves won't sit still. Now, Cooper, uh, we, we've been talking uh, for a while now, but I want uh, to kind of bring it back because um, you kind of alluded to this a little bit about how this notion of invisibility can be uh, explored or navigated in multiple ways. And, um, towards the end of the book, you, you kind of, uh, kind of circle around and kind of, uh, think about this notion of invisibility and kind of a, a, a present moment. Um, so, uh, can, can you tell us a little bit about how, what you did with Ellison and thinking about his career, uh, has has kind of led you to think about uh, kind of the social world more broadly, um, either from the examples you use in the book, or maybe there's even more you've been you've been thinking about. Sure. So I think one of the things that that, and maybe one of the even the motivations behind the book in general was uh, <laughs> a kind of realization that whatever whatever Ellison's shortcomings or whatever the ways he doesn't blend into perhaps the preferred ways we might think about or, or ways that he doesn't align with uh, kind of best practice for, for talking and thinking about um, these ideas in the present tense. I was really, I mean, kind of dumbfounded by the ways that, that the ways that the present specifically at the time I was uh, reading and writing this project and revising the project, the ways that, the present kept intruding in, in an Ellisonian vein. Uh, the two examples I use in the conclusion are, are drones and, uh, and Clint Eastwood's invisible chair. If you recall the, I think the 2008 Republican convention, <laughs> um, and it's not the invisible chair, the empty chair, but uh, Eastwood speaks to Obama who's not there, but he's speaking to an invisible man, which then leads to like people who are hanging, lynching, invisible chairs. And so one of the things that I, I sort of set out to, to think through was what, why is it, why is it that there are these, these eruptions? Why is it that there are these, these eruptions of a kind of uh, eruptions of the Ellisonian in the present tense in the 21st century, if Ellison is really so wrong or so outmoded in his understanding of, of racial identity and the, you know, the politics of race, why is it that uh, U.S. foreign policy deploys this kind of invisible death that rains from the sky? What is it about drones as this unseen seer, this eye in the sky? What is it about um, what is it about the, the the actual act 
of, of hanging an empty chair, an implied president, lynching an implied black male president, uh, lynching a kind of invisible property. Why, why are these, why are these the, the, why are these what is, what is springing out uh, at this time? And I think that the point that I say in, in the book or where I end in the book, although I had, I had even as, as the final edits were going in, I had this, this sort of weird feeling of, of the sufficiency of, of this. And I think I, I don't know what I would say, but I would write it differently now was that these eruptions show something about, about a kind of long hidden or an invisible, the invisible quality of Ellison's own vision and understanding. And that if we think about uh, the concept of race, if we think about uh, sort of realities of, of, of African-American existence, uh, sort of as they emerge out of black studies, if we think about them solely as, as materialist properties, which they ought to be thought about as, but if we think about them solely in that way, if that is our imaginary, if our imaginary is that invisible man is about social marginalization, then we're going to have one set, one way of thinking about things. But the Ellisonian vein, the notion of an invisible man, this sort of invisible theology that I ascribe to Ellison, the theology of invisibility, the kind of political theology of invisibility, is one, is what I saw erupting at that moment. And, I, and maybe that is what still is kind of erupting. We can think about um, the second novel, very well may have a great deal to say about <coughs> the present day um, in the past couple of years. And so maybe it's not that, that uh, maybe I wouldn't change it. I would just write it in, in different ways or even in broader strokes. But the idea is that Invisibility, this metaphor of invisibility gives us not only, not only a kind of political, kind of social uh, materialist metaphor, but it invites us to think about other things, those things not seen, the metaphysical, the, the uh, and, and then we can circle back again to, to the introduction where I'm thinking about um, the black man, the witches, right, who, one of whom is... is uh, the demons in the Salem witch trials are often referred to as the black man or the devil is the black man or, or these other ways, these kinds of receptions, the ways that we have received signals and metaphors that are written onto inscribed upon um, racial identity and the reality of, of the American reality. And maybe we would even say, Western or colonial, I mean, colonial, a, a kind of transnational version of this reality. What Ellison allows us to do, what Ellison invites us to do, I would say what Ellison demands that we do is to ask this other set of questions, to investigate along these other lines, something beyond the ways that we have been trained to do, the ways that have sort of reigned supreme over the past half century or so. Now, obviously, there's there's more to be uh, gathered from a reading of the book. We we weren't able to cover everything. Um, I would love to hear what you're working on now, Cooper. Uh, I know you have a couple of uh, really interesting projects. So, what what can you tell us about what uh, we'll we'll get to read in the future? Yes, so I'm I'm working on a book that I call right now 
I um, oh crap, <laughs> I'm working on a book that I call, or at least I call it now, Muhammad Ali and the Irony of American Religion, and it is uh, an attempt to fill a gap. Uh, first of all, for the uh, an academic book about Muhammad Ali as a religious figure, but I'm also sort of uh, using that also as a way. I hope to 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 use Ali as a lens for reimagining post-war American religion. Uh, how can we move away from narratives of Protestant decline, uh, diversity, um, and these these kinds of uh, uh, sort of church history questions? And how can Ali help us understand uh, sort of post-war American religion, considered broadly, uh, sort of long post-war American religion, which is about I would say is the time of his life, 1942 to 2016, uh, in new ways. Someone who is uh, Muslim, someone who's engaged in questions of of law, performance, gender, uh, race, uh, sort of transnational decoloniality, and so using Ali, using this story about Ali, also to tell a story of, about um, other ways of imagining this concept of American religion. Well, I look forward to that. I think a lot of readers would, uh, would, would really uh, enjoy an, uh, this kind of new context of, of thinking about such an important figure uh, beyond the American context as well. So good luck with that, Cooper. And uh, thanks for making some time to talk about this wonderful book. Thank you very much, Christian. It's been a pleasure. That was my conversation with Cooper Harris about Ralph Ellison's Invisible Theology published with NYU Press in 2017. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Religion.